It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, we are going to be in Hebrews. We're back to Hebrews uh, for one week, and then I said, and as I said before, next week we're going to be um, having a special message on Halloween. Uh, but today we're going to cover uh, verses twelve through seventeen in Hebrews chapter twelve, and the title for our message is "Be Wary of the Flesh." Be wary of the flesh. So before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. And Heavenly Father, Abba, we we thank you that we can call you Abba. And we thank you that you are a God who treats us as children. As we were in this passage before, looking at verse 1 through 11, we learn that you discipline us, that you um, work through us um, as a father loves his children. And so what a beautiful picture. And then, of course, last Sunday we talked about the importance of children. And Lord God, as um, we saw that children are a blessing, and so therefore, when we put two and two together, you see us as a blessing. And what a wonderful concept to know that the God who created the heavens and the earth looks down upon his children and he calls them blessed. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you because, you know, many times the world says everything else about us. Doesn't call us blessed, doesn't call us uh, beloved, doesn't call us uh, your special creation. But Lord, you do. And so thank you. And so therefore, now as we cover this next section, you are warning us now, therefore, to um, guard ourselves against our worst enemy, which is our own flesh. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this passage, that you would speak to those hearts here and um, those here presently and and those um, watching remotely online, Lord, and maybe even someone who may watch this message later on. We pray, Lord, that um, you would minister to their hearts. And so we thank you and we praise you in the name of Yeshua. Everyone said, amen. 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 So I'm going to read the passage. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 12 through 17 from the ESV. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we're going to break this up into a couple of sections. The first section is Be Strengthened in the Lord. The second section is walk straight, walk holy. Our third section is till the heart. Our fourth section and be holy. And finally, our fifth section and know that certain choices are irrevocable. So let's start with our first section then. 
Um, so we get back into it. Sorry, I have to scroll down. Be strengthened in the Lord. And so uh, that is going to cover verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Sorry, there's a fly. I think I got it. Did I get it? Maybe, possibly. Yes, I got it. Sweet. All right. All right, there we go. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's bad. That's bad. <laughs> Forget I said that. Um, so verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And so just want to point out something because different translations may say lift uh, the drooping hands and uh, strengthen the weak knees, depending on what version you're, you're looking at. And really, when you look at that verb or when you look at that, um, that passage right there, those couple of words, it, it's, it's, it's written in the second person singular um, as well as actually written in a second person plural. So basically, it's a admonition from the writer. He's talking not to one particular person, but he's talking to everyone. He's saying, you know, as, as you're reading this, as you are going over this in the church, this letter is being read. He's basically saying, hey, take a canvas, look about, look about you, look at the congregation, look at your brother and your sister. And where you have identified drooping hands, you are to lift them. And where you have identified weak knees, you are to strengthen them. But of course, it's also a check for us individually if our hands are drooping and if our knees are weakened. Now, let's Let's understand what that means, because actually the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. And Isaiah 35, verse 3 says, um, I'm sorry, this is a old King James that I'm about to read to you, but it says, Make ye the weak hands strong, chazak, that's the word in Hebrew for strong, and strengthen the beriachim, berachim, uh, and koshlat. And so it means to strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. And what's the context for this? Well, the prophet Isaiah, we see, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage those who are ransomed. Uh, Isaiah was prophesying of a time when God would bring about his judgment on the nation of Judah, and when God would allow Judah to be carried away into captivity to Babylon. And so as Isaiah is prophesying, he is giving a word of encouragement beforehand saying, hey, look, God will bring you back. He will bring you back physically to the land of promise, but he will also bring you back into a favored relationship with him. And so as he is writing this, Isaiah, he is writing this for the sake of encouragement. He is writing this for the sake of edification. But we also have to understand that our sin is constantly looking for paths into our heart. That sin, as Jesus said to Peter, is crouching, or as God said to Cain, it lies there, it is waiting. And so sometimes we think of sin as like, well, okay, well, sin, my obvious sin would be, okay, I, I don't want to lust after this person, or I don't want to get angry, or I don't want to kill somebody, I don't want to steal from somebody. But uh, we have to be careful that our emotions can be doorways for sin. And so part of our emotions uh, are things such as finding ourselves in states of weakness. Um, Isaiah goes on in verse 1 through 2 of, of Isaiah 35. He says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Um, the crocus is a perennial flower. In other words, that means that it... Did I get it? Nope. 
Okay, didn't get that one. Um, it grows up, it blossoms every year. And the beautiful thing about a crocus is that it's, it's such an unusual plant is that it actually pushes through the snowfall. It's one of, sometimes in different regions, it's the first flower to bloom, indicating that spring is arriving. And so he goes on to say, verse two, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And so the picture we're getting here is that one day God is going to bring you into a place where your joy will blossom, you will rejoice with singing. And so when you are going through trials, remember the context of this, okay? Remember the context. What did we cover in verse 1 through 11? We talked about the discipline of the Lord. We talked about God disciplining us. And if we hearken back to those times when we were kids, you know, when our parents disciplined us, you know, that moment afterwards, and first we see that in verse 11, that uh, when the time for discipline comes, it's not a joyous occasion, Right? It's not an occasion filled with festivities and fun, right? Like, oh, this is great. What happened? I just got spanked by my mom. It was the greatest thing ever, right? I feel so alive. You know, we don't usually respond that way. Rather, our response is we feel dejected. We feel we're in pain. We're crying. We're suffering. We're inconsolable. And so when God takes us through things, when God takes us through trials, it's painful, when, when God needs to discipline us, when he needs to scourge things out of our hearts, it's not pleasant. And so what we find ourselves is we find ourselves in a, an area of vulnerability where the enemy now can use that as an occasion to bring us into sin and separation from the Lord. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing this to encourage us He's right. He's saying, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter the discipline of the Lord in that moment when you are broken, in that moment when you are shedding tears, in that moment where you are weeping, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to turn your eyes to the promises of the Lord. And what are the promises of the Lord? That like this crocus, which blooms, pushes through the snow, pushes through at the last day, the last time of winter, uh, is, is undeterred, but blooms and signals the beginning of spring. I want that to spring up and bloom in your heart, this renewed joy and understanding that God, your father, has allowed this to pass because he loves you and that he has not put you off. He has not cast you away, but he has a plan for your life. You know, we can look at two examples. We can look at Judas and we can look at Peter. Both men had their moments where they realized they had done something horrific. Let's think about Peter. Peter, what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. He denies him vehemently, even to the point where he is cursing. He's falling back into his fisherman language, right? And so he said, I do not know this man. And, and he proclaims it to everyone in his hearing. And then we look at Judas and what does Judas do? He, he leaves during the Last Supper and he betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And then afterwards, his guilt overwhelms him. His sorrow overcomes him. Now, what did both men do? What does Peter do? Peter weeps bitterly, but the Lord restores him. Judas weeps bitterly and he kills himself. And so Satan used that occasion. Satan was hoping to bring Peter down in the same way that he brought Judas down. 
But the difference between Peter and Judas, and, and Judas is that the Holy Spirit was guarding Peter because Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, Jesus said to Peter, go and strengthen your brother. And so really, if you want to sum up this entire message that we're going to talk about, it's really just that. It's when God has restored us from the trial, from the discipline, like Job, uh, like Peter, when we see, like David, when we see God's hand of restoration resting upon us after he's taken us through this trial of fire, we are then to take those lessons and we are then to go to our brother and sister and we are to strengthen them just as the Lord has strengthened us. In verse 4 of Isaiah 35, Isaiah writes, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. God will bring you out of that place, that place where the enemy is saying you have been rejected, that place where the enemy is saying you've been cast off, that place where the enemy says that God no longer wants you. See, he has caused you to go through this trial. God will say, no, that is not true. I am with you. If you have an anxious heart, be strong. Do not fear. Do not fear that your Lord has cast you off. Do not fear that your Lord has forgotten you. Do not fear that your Lord has rejected you and has moved on and has broken his promises to you. His promises are yes and amen. If he has brought you through the trial or if he has taken you to the trial, he will bring you through the trial and he will restore you and he will move you forward. Of course, we have something to do with that, though. What role do we play? Our role is to be submitted through the trial. Our role is to allow the chastening of the Lord to come upon us and to endure it, as we read in the previous verses, to persevere so that God will find an image of himself in our lives. But when we resist, when we resist what God is doing, when we resist the the, the chastening, when we resist where, where God is trying to remake us and remold us and shape us, we will find ourselves being broken, but not in the way that God intended, but in a way that then becomes necessary until we finally, finally submit to the Lord. And so the key in all that is we have to submit. Now let's talk about drooping hands and weak knees. Drooping hands, that phrase is parimai. It means relaxed, unstrung, weakened, exhausted. Weak knees is parilo, paralio, where we get the word paralyzed. It means enfeebled, uh, sick, taken with palsy. Now, as we talk about drooping hands, focusing back on this, it reminds me of Exodus chapter 17, verse 12 through 13. If you want to, you can turn there. And so the scene that we see here is Moses and the Israelites, just as they are coming out of the promised land, they are in a battle. They're in a battle with whom? They're in a battle with the Amalekites. They are fighting Amalek. And so verse 12, it says, Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands. So the, the idea is that Moses' hands were lifted up. 
And as Moses' hands were lifted up, uh, the, the battle was going in the favor of the Israelites. But as Moses' hands began to drop down, then the Amalekites began to overwhelm the Israelites. And so uh, Aaron and her seeing what's happening, they, they recognize the, co- the connection because as Moses' hands are lifted up, it, it's sort of an image of, of praise. It's sort of an image of, of lifting up your hands towards the Lord, of, of saying, Lord, here I am. Lord, I worship you. Lord, I submit to you. Uh, Lord, I am here for you. And, and so as they see his hands coming down, uh, they see that the enemy is overwhelming God's people. And, you know, when we find ourselves with our hands drooping, when we stop praising the Lord, when we stop thinking about him, when we stop making him first in our lives, we will find that the struggles of life, the difficulties of life will begin to overwhelm us. The temptations that we are are necessarily, uh, uh, that we struggle against more so than other people, these are things that will find open doors in our hearts and our minds. And so the image here is that we need to consistently have our hands raised up to the Lord. And I don't necessarily mean physically, it may be physically, but in our heart. Our heart needs to be lifted up to the Lord. We need to have a submitted relationship with God where we are praising him with our words, our deeds, our thoughts on a consistent basis. We can't just relegate times of worship to the Lord to Sunday and maybe Wednesday night. But it needs to be 24-7. It needs to be every single day. Uh, as we, we talked about last week, in, in the morning as we wake up, in the evening as we go down, throughout the day. We think about Daniel. Daniel prayed three times a day. And so we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be men and women whose minds are focused on the Lord. Why? Because not only is the joy of the Lord our strength, but when we are praising the Lord, we are saying, Lord, I am asking you to fight this battle. And God is saying, yes, I will. I will fight this battle for you because I am the Lord, your God, and I am your inheritance, thus says the Lord. And so Aaron and Hur, they hold up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And read verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So what's, what's another significance of this passage? Well, Amalek is what we call a type. And when we talk about types, it's based upon the idea of typology, where it's a special kind of symbolism. Uh, whereas we see in the Bible, a symbol that represents something else. And so in this case, Amalek actually is a type of Satan, and Amalek is a type of the flesh, both of which attack the men and women of God. Notice this, though, especially when they are weak, especially when they are sick. In fact, some of the things that were happening as as the people are coming out of Egypt, we see in the word of God that those who were weak as they're leaving Egypt in this long train of millions of people, those who were weak, those who were uh, sick, those who weren't strong enough, they were the ones who were sort of lagging behind. And the word of God tells us that Amalek would come and they would attack the rear guard of Israel. They would attack those who were weak. They would attack those who were lagging. They would attack those who were weary and sick. And so the purpose is to separate God's people from each other. 
And so we have to understand this, that the type of the flesh, this type of sin, this type of Satan, Satan desires to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He seeks to divide God's people from the Lord. And so what he likes to do is, is like, look, you know, the moment we are in weakness and, and our minds are toned to ourselves or for whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever's going on in our hearts, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to drive a wedge between us and God, just as he did with Adam and Eve. It's not a new playbook. It's the same story. It's the same strategy. It worked in the garden and it still works today. And so Amalek, again, as we said, he represents a type. Uh, what do we know about Amalek? Amalek was a grandson of Esau. And we're going to talk about Esau a little bit later on today. But notice that Esau also is a type of the flesh. And so when we talk about uh, the flesh, we understand that uh, the flesh cannot inherit the things of God. Paul says that, right? That no flesh will inherit eternity. And so what we have to understand by that, what he's saying is that, look, our preconceived notions, our things, the things that we think of, the things that are that drive us, you know, the things that we, we hold dear in terms of our understanding, these are not necessarily things that inherit God's kingdom. In fact, we are warned over and over again in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have to put ourselves in a position where we are trusting God, we are fearing him, we are revering him, but also fearing him, and we're living our lives in such a way that that becomes apparent. So the flesh is always at war with God. That which is born of flesh remains flesh. The flesh doesn't get converted. Rather, God is going to transform these lowly bodies and he's going to give us a glorified body, but he will not bring us into a relationship with him in our present state. That You know, that's why Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. You realize that? When Adam and Eve sinned and God says, let us cast man out of the garden, lest he take hold of the tree of what? Of life. And the idea behind that was God, because of his mercy and his love for mankind, because he did not want mankind to remain in a perpetual state of sin and separation, he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. What an amazing act of mercy. Though at the time, Adam and Eve, I'm sure they perceived it as rejection. They perceived it as God doesn't want anything to do with this anymore. And at that moment in their grief, because of the sin that they had committed and that, and that grief and their sorrow, they didn't see beyond to the manifold wisdom of God and what he was doing. And sometimes we're in the same place. God is doing something. God is working our lives and, and it's painful, but God has a really good reason why he's doing it. And we just don't see it through our tears, through our, our weeping, uh, through our pain, through our frustration, through our anger. In the moment, we just don't see what God is doing, but trust Dear ones, trust the Lord. You are his beloved, and he has a reason and a purpose for it. Okay, so let's talk about weak knees. Um, again, we said that that word in Greek is uh, paralio, uh, where we get the word paralyzed from it. And when I think of that, I, I, I turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. Um, so Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, we see Paul writing this to us. And we should be familiar with this passage. 
He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So this idea of weak knees, of not being able to stand, not being able to walk according to God's will uh, because you are emotionally distraught or you're in anger or whatever it may be, you're disappointed. And so therefore, it's just hard for you to move forward with God. You have been weakened at your very foundation. Paul says you should stand and not only stand, but you should stand firm. Verse 14 says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So as we stand, we have to understand that the only way we can stand firm is if we have equipped ourselves with the armor of God. He says, we are to stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. That belt of truth represents that uh, it protects our core, who we are, right? And our seat of emotions. And so our seat of emotions need to be grounded in truth. We need to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us and that no matter what comes in our life, what comes our way, it is a loving God who has permitted it to come. Stand therefore with the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so we are to then cover our lungs and cover our heart with his righteousness. As we intake, we need to intake righteousness and thoughts of righteousness. We need to allow God's righteousness to cover us and shield us and protect us. Not relying upon our own righteousness, not relying upon our own understanding not relying upon our, our self-righteousness, as many are wont to do, but rather relying upon the righteousness of God to protect our vital area. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So shoes, needing, needing shoes to have a firm foundation, to be able to take steps where we don't slip. That, that step, that ability is based upon the gospel of peace. Peace knowing that we have peace first and foremost with God. We have a relationship with God. We are not at war with God, but rather we stand firm on the foundation that he loves us and that he has called us his children. Verse 16, in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The enemy is constantly, constantly, constantly bombarding us. He's bombarding our mind. He's bombarding our heart. He's bombarding the seat of our emotions. He's bombarding people in us, people in our lives surrounding us. He is constantly throwing things at us. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to guard ourselves with this shield of faith that says, I believe and trust in the Lord no matter what I see occurring. And take the helmet of salvation, right? So our mind, our thoughts are guarded by the fact that we are saved and we are redeemed and we cannot be plucked out of his hands and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we combat the wicked devices of Satan and we cut them down. In fact, in Hebrews chapter four, we learn that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it's able to pierce and divide and get down to the actual truth of things. And so we use the word of God as a tool to understand what is true and what is not true. 
and also to extinguish and defeat the works of the enemy. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so we have a sword that we can do combat with in a, a very narrow, uh, proximal sense, but we'd also have prayers that we can do combat with at a distance. And so we can affect what's happening on a battleground uh, miles away. We can pray for each other, even though we're not physically there and our prayers are effective. Our prayers are like arrows that God uses mightily. And so that brings us to this concept that is used in a lot of addiction recovery circles. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but it's called HALT. And it represents hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And, and these are things that in addiction uh, circles, recovery circles, uh, counseling, uh, they focus on these because these are areas that can trigger people back into addictive behavior. So things like if you become too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired, you may then turn and seek relief from alcohol and or drugs. And so hunger can be a physical or emotional need. This is the idea of like you are, are lacking something. You feel this, this emptiness inside of you. Maybe the people who um, you feel like you don't have love and care, you don't have support. And so because you're feeling this, because you feel as if you're cast off or you're not having that, that emptiness uh, being fulfilled, you then turn to something else. It could be a food addiction uh, in the counseling world, but as a believer, it can be turning to sin. It can be relying upon the flesh. It could be relying upon the old things that we used to do instead of turning and faithfully waiting on the Lord. Peter sort of went through that same thing. When he found himself having denied the Lord, the word of God tells us that he went back to fishing. Not that that was a sin, but that it was something he was comfortable with. He went back to what he knew. And, but we know that Jesus found him and restored him. And so God can do the same thing for us. Angry, uh, that we don't need to go into great details. We know what that is, but we know that the word of God tells us um, to be angry um, well, if we are being angry, we're not to let the sun set on our anger in Ephesians. We see that. We're told to be angry and sin not. In other words, don't let our disappointments, our anger, overwhelm us and control us. Don't live a life such that you relate to people based upon the volatility of your emotions. And so we see how many examples over and over again, you turn on the news, you turn on the internet, you look at situations, you see how people have let their anger overwhelm them. Think about car rage incidents or you know, people on the freeways, people who don't even know each other. Someone just makes a mistake, cuts in front of this other person. And now this other person who has a, a weapon in their vehicle, they drive them down, uh, they get in front of them, they harass them, they pull out a gun and they shoot that person, someone they never knew all because of one simple mistake. And they let their anger overwhelm them and control them. And now they are living for the next 50 years with a mistake they made that took place over five minutes. 
Anger can be so pervasive. If we allow it to control us, we will find ourselves regretting for the rest of our lives a mistake that we made in the concept or in the space of a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes. Loneliness. We talk about loneliness. Uh, you know, you can be alone with, with, with no one around and you can be alone among a bunch of people as well. And, and it's the idea of isolating yourselves when you don't feel as if those uh, people around you or anyone else around you understands you. And by the way, you have to be wary of that because that's a lie from the enemy. It's the idea like, you know what, I can't open up. I can't, I can't be vulnerable because no one's going to understand me. Uh, no one's going to appreciate who I am. They don't know my past. They don't know my background. And, and so the enemy is just whispering that into your, into your ear the whole time. And you're sucking it up. You're eating it up. You're like, yeah, no one's going to love you. No one's going to appreciate you. No one cares about you. And so you find yourself closing yourself off not being vulnerable, not talking to people, not inviting people in your lives. And, and to be sure, there have been situations where, you know, people will open up to someone and someone burns them. Someone takes what they said and they gossip it and they, they spread it to other people. And now everyone knows the things that you're struggling with. And so, yeah, those are unfortunate situations. But you know what? When you're in the house of God, when you are fellowshipping with believers, we should be able to go to each other we should be able to seek encouragement and counsel from each other, amen? Without fear of that being taken and being misconstrued and being spread for the purpose of gossip, we should be able to know that we can have a confident relationship with each other. And so that is something we have to, we have to deal with as loneliness. The enemy tries to impose loneliness on us by causing us to fear being open with each other. But more importantly, worse than that, he tries to create loneliness by causing us to fear being honest and open with the Lord. So we don't go to God when we're struggling. We don't go to God. We don't, we don't cast our care. Peter says that. Peter, uh, you know, Peter and James both say the same thing. They say we are to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. Cast our burdens on him. In fact, Jesus says that in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and you will find rest. And so what we have to understand is that loneliness is from the enemy, this, this self-idea. I'm not saying being alone. I'm just saying like where we are isolating ourselves because we don't think that others are, are, are coming, can come into our lives and be a blessing or whatever it may be. Uh, we have to be aware of that. And then finally, tired. Everybody knows about being tired, right? We are busy, busy people. When I was in uh, college, there was an article I read called The Overworked American. It talked about how Americans, compared to all the other nations, for the most part, are at the top of the scale in terms of working, working, and working to the point where there's no time for each other. There's no time for, self, um, for self-improvement or, or recreation. I mean, we're just overworked. We work hard. And, and not only is it an issue of work, you know, we've got different situations. We've got single moms. We've got single fathers. Uh, we've got people working two and three jobs because there are economic restrictions or economic um, uh, concerns. I mean, there's just a lot of things. And then if it's not work, then there's, there's family commitments. Uh, there's, there's just things that are going on in life. And so uh, what naturally follows is fatigue. We get tired. 
And what happens when you get tired? If you're not focusing on the Lord. That's the moment when you're prone to making a mistake. In sports, when I used to play, when I used to play, don't play, obviously I don't play anymore. But when I used to play sports, you know, the worst times for injuries were when you were tired. When you're fresh, your muscle memory is still there. Uh, the things that you trained in, the things that you've done before, you, you still have it. You're able to exert the amount of energy that you need to prevent you from causing injury to yourself. But when you're tired, that concentration is gone. Uh, the muscle memory is not there anymore. The energy is not there anymore. And now all of a sudden, you're more vulnerable to making mistakes. You're more vulnerable to getting injured. And so the same thing as walking uh, with the Lord. When we are tired, when we are not resting, I want to say this again, resting. By the way, what, has God given us a day of rest? Don't be afraid. Say it. God has given us a day of rest. So why don't we take it? It's the fourth commandment that God says. And no, we're not a Torah observant congregation, but it's still the word of God. He said, right? He talked about, remember the Sabbath for it is holy. And what did Jesus say about the Sabbath? He said, hey, the Sabbath, man's not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for who? It's made for man. And so whether your Sabbath is Sunday, whether your Sabbath is, is Monday, whether your Sabbath is Saturday, whatever it is, we have this new covenant relationship with God. And so God, there's a lot of grace in that. But I want to encourage you, rest in the Lord. Take a day and rest in him. Take a day and recover. God knew what he was doing. He didn't just take a day off, just like, oh, you know, I'm so good. I'm just going to take a day off, you know. He did it to give us an example. He did it to give us, number one, a spiritual example that Yeshua is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, right? We don't have to earn salvation anymore because he's already done the work so we can rest in him. But he also gave us an example that, you know what? I made it, I designed you so that you will need to take time to rest. And you know what? If you need to take time to rest, you just need to do it, man. It's, it's, it's biblical, right? There you go. So when we're tired and we are not resting, first of all, we're not spiritually resting in the Lord, right? And second of all, when we're allowing our bodies to break down, we may find ourselves more vulnerable uh, for the enemy to do what he wants to do. Okay, next section. Walk straight, walk holy. Walk straight, walk holy. Verse 13 says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we see a couple words here we need to define. Straight in Greek is orthos. I'm sure we get some, some understandings of that word, how we use it on a day-to-day -day basis. It means erect, honest. Uh, it means level or direct, straight and upright. Uh, the word lame means kolos, means crippled, deprived, maimed. Uh, that phrase put out a joint. Uh, ektrepo means wrenched out of its proper place. And then where he says strive for peace, uh, another translation may say pursue, diaco. And what's cool about that word is that it's a present active imperative. In other words, it's a command. This is a command that we are supposed to do. We are supposed to do this. We are to strive. We are to pursue peace with everyone. And it's second person plural. So that means it applies to everyone, all of us, not only to those receiving the command, 
but also in terms of who the command is directed to. So we are all as believers to pursue peace and we are all as believers to pursue peace with all people. And so what do we see here? We're making straight paths for our feet. These paths need to be honest. They need to be level. They need to be direct and straight. You know, you think about elevations. I don't know if anyone's ever done any off uh, cross-country running or trail running or anything like that, but or even biking on uneven surfaces. But, you know, those elevation changes or those, those changes to the left and to the right or just uh, gradient changes, you know, they can wreak havoc with you if you're not prepared for them, if you're not careful for them. And so we see the same thing as we are to walk, we are to walk, we are to make straight paths. In other words, we're not to allow anything in our lives uh, that will cause us to, to dip away or, or be persuaded to the left or to the right, but rather we are to be purposeful in making sure that the path that God takes us on, the path that we are walking, that we're living as we interact with each other, it's a straight path. It's an honest path. It's a level path. Why? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint. So the idea of like walking through, and, and I used to, when I played basketball a lot, I turned my ankles all the time, always. I would just always turn my ankles. And so I had to be careful, especially in, in, if you're running out in the grass and you run into a ditch or a little divot in the grass, that was a nightmare for me because I would almost always turn my ankle then and I'd, I'd be out for a couple of days while my ankle is healing. And so it's the idea of you want your path to be straight so that your walk or your walk with the Lord is not put out of joint uh, so that you're not sidelined. So, so walk with the Lord in such a way, make, make honest assessments in your life. Be aware of what could cause you to fall. Be aware of what could cause you to, to stumble so that you may not be disqualified, so that you may not be put on the shelf, but that you can fulfill what God is calling you to do. And sometimes that may be putting away things that cause us to stumble. That may be, as we said, we saw earlier in this chapter, things that easily ensnare us or, or sins that cause us to fall down. We are to take, make examination of those things and we are to see, hey, am I living in such a way that I'm encountering these things on a daily basis? If I am, I need to make changes. All right? Am I putting myself in a position to be tempted every single day? If I am, then that means my path is not straight. So what I need to do is I need to change my path so that I'm not walking through those thorns. So I'm not walking through those areas of temptation, but I'm walking in a path that takes me away from that stuff, whatever it may be. Whether it's something that causes you to be angry or causes you to feel lonely or tired or, or whatever it is that you're struggling with. And the idea is so that I don't find myself stumbling and being put out of joint. Now, that's not to say that in our normal day-to-day -day life, things won't happen, things won't come our way that we didn't anticipate. That's not to say that, um, and, and, and bear with me with this, that's not to say that we won't have David Bathsheba moments where we're out on the roof and all of a sudden there's something that, that causes us to stumble. Rather, what we should be doing, what we should be avoiding is looking for David Bathsheba moments. We shouldn't be looking for those things. If we have identified them, we should remove them from our eyesight. We should remove them from our path and from our walk. 
So verse 14 says, strive for peace. Now, all this, what does this mean? Well, sometimes God will use people to bring discipline into our lives. God will use nations. He used the nation of Babylon to bring Judah unto the discipline. Uh, God used them in a great way. And so what then can happen is that we can find ourselves being bitter. We can find ourselves being angry. We can find ourselves being at odds with these people. And so that's why he says in four, verse 14, we are to pursue peace. We are to pursue peace. And this peace has to be based upon the understanding that God is the one who pursued peace with us. We didn't initiate that relationship, but God initiated that pursuit with us. He's the one that reached out to us. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says while we were at war with God, he sent his son to come and die for us. So therefore, if he has pursued peace with us, then it naturally follows that as image bearers, right? We're made in his image. We look like him. We should talk like him. We should walk like him. We should think like him. Then we should pursue peace with others like him. It's not always the easiest thing to do because we're pursuing peace with other people. And those people are a lot like us, right? We've got issues. I've got issues, right? We struggle with things. And so God, a perfect God, you know, um, immutable in his love, um, gracious, uh, merciful, he's calling us to do what he does. We are still surrounded by our body of death, still surrounded by our emotions that lead us away from the Lord. We're still surrounded by these things, and he's calling us to pursue peace. But you know what? We can do it by the power of the Spirit. And that's where it takes being submitted to his holiness. I want to talk about this because it says, I want to pick up on this, this part right here, which says, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This holiness, this idea that if we don't have this, we're not going to see the Lord. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 11. I'll, I'll read this to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That also takes us to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this peace that we are to pursue, we are to strive for it with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we have to radically, radically be willing for God to change us and, and, and modify us and transform us 
to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. These are things that God is calling us to do. And, and as we pursue holiness, we will see God. We will see him in our lives. We will see him as we interact with people. But most importantly, people will see him in us. We will be witnesses to everyone in our household, in our neighborhood, at our workplace, in fact, to the entire world. That takes us to the next section, till the heart. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now that passage, the writer of Hebrews, is quoting from Deuteronomy 29, uh, verse 18 through 19. And so here we have right here, verse 18 in Deuteronomy 29, it says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Now, the context for that is Moses is reaffirming the promises, reaffirming the law in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the last book of the Pentateuch, and this is just before they're about to go into the promised land. And so Moses is with the people, and, and previously in chapter 28, they have gone over the blessings and the curses, the blessings being if you follow God's law, these blessings were announced over Mount, e Mount Gerzim, then these are the things that God will pursue you with. Remember, David says, you know, um, you know, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Really, that word in Hebrew is pursue him in Psalm 23. And so he all, but then also con uh, in, in contrast, over Mount Ebal, you had the other six tribes and they pronounced the curses that would follow and hunt them down should they walk away from God's law. Now, it's interesting to know that um, this renewal, um, as they saw in, verse, in chapter 28, this happens over uh, Mount Gerizim and Ebal. But before they get there, they were in Moab. And so Moab is a region and a land immediately east uh, of the Dead Sea. So if you look at a picture of Israel, map of Israel, you would see the Dead Sea. The land to the east, for the most part, is Moab that's adjacent to the Dead Sea. That would be modern-day Jordan today. Modern-day Jordan today. And it was among the first lands that were conquered by the Israelites. So who is Moab? Moab is the son of Lot, Abraham's cousin. And how did Moab come to be born? Well, as Lot and his wife and his two daughters were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, as God chose to bring down punishment upon them, uh, his wife, we know the story that she was turned into a pillar of salt and his daughters unfortunately thought that the entire world was ending. And so they thought that since the entire world was ending that it was up to them uh, to replenish and repopulate the human race. And so they, um, they ended up having an incestuous uh, relationship with their father. And one of those sons that was born was Moab. The other was Ammon. And so you had the Moabites, the Ammonites, and they occupied 
the regions to the east of the Dead Sea. And so the name of Moab means of his father. And again, we talked about types before. This is a picture of the spiritual forces that seek to overcome the Christian, uh, this Christian who battles in spiritual wickedness in high places. Moab signifies the carnal mind, the mind that trusts in man, the mind does not, that does not seek by faith to walk according to God. And so you see the situation. These girls, they thought the world was over. They thought that the charge was upon them to do this, to carry this out. Uh, and, and, and so now you have these offspring, you have these people that are born. But the Moabites are also famous because when Israel was coming into the land, they hired a guy named Balaam to curse Israel. And we know that story, Balaam just couldn't curse Israel until Balaam said, hey, well, this is how you trick the Israelites into uh, coming under the wrath of God. You have your daughters seduce their sons and so forth. And so they were seduced into uh, spiritual idolatry. So we have this image that um, as, as God is saying, he's, he's reminding us, the writer of Hebrews is saying, let no root of bitterness, this is coming from that time, this idea of, of allowing our hearts, allowing our emotions, allowing ourselves to control our walk on a day-to-day -day basis. Deuteronomy 29, verse 19, the one when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, so you have God's words, he hears God's words, but he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe. I don't need to listen to God's words. I don't need to listen to his commands. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And so we see a lot of people today who know that the word of God is true. We see people outside the church. They have, they know what God's word says and they have chosen, they have chosen to bless themselves. They account themselves as righteous. They account themselves as, hey, I'm a good person. I don't need to follow God. I don't need to pursue the Lord. I don't need to go to church. I'm spiritual. I don't need to have fellowship. And then also you have that within the church. So we can be so self-deceived. And you know what usually happens after God has taken us through trials, after God has taken us through tribulations, after God has used someone to correct us, what usually springs up in our heart? Bitterness. And bitterness is the product and fruit of carnal thinking. It comes from a person that is persuaded that they are self-sufficient, they're a person who is persuaded that they do not have to submit to God's word. A person is persuaded that they do not have to pursue peace with other people. They don't have to love God as God as God loves us. They don't have to love people as God loves people. They don't have to forgive as they have been forgiven by the Lord. And so bitterness can spring up in us. And we will find ourselves defiled. We will find ourselves contaminated. We will find ourselves, in a, in a, in a sense, uh, no longer consecrated by the grace of God, but now destined for the judgment and wrath of God as he now tries to correct us and get us back where we need to be. In fact, in classical Greek literature, the same word that's used for defiled is used to convey the sense of dyeing a garment with another color or staining a garment. And that could be intentionally or unintentionally. So it's the idea of like, you know, you have your favorite shirt, right? Or you have your favorite dress and you're eating spaghetti. And this always happens to me, right? And you're eating spaghetti and boom, there it is right there, right? You got the stain on your shirt that's not coming out anytime soon. 
And so, in other words, and, and so you got the shirt now or this garment that's been ruined. And it's going to take a long time to get that stain out. And you know, sometimes when we make decisions that are governed by the flesh, like someone driving down a freeway that decides they're going to take out their anger on that other person, we will find ourselves with a consequence that is going to take a long time to wash away. There's guilt associated with that. There's condemnation associated with that. There may be legal issues associated with that. And so we have to pursue following after God. We cannot allow ourselves to make decisions that are governed by the stubbornness of our hearts. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Isaiah tells us that. We can't trust our hearts. We can't. You know, this whole mantra, follow your heart, follow your heart. You know where your heart's going to lead you? Apart from God? It's going to lead you away from the Lord. And it's going to lead you to damaging and hurting people because you are just pursuing your own sensual pleasures. And you care nothing about what happens to anybody else. Why do you think the divorce rate's so high? Why do you think there's so many children who don't have fathers or mothers in their, ha- in their lives? Why do you think there's so much carnality and sensuality in this world that is not of the Lord? It's because people are pursuing their heart's desires and they are not surrendering or submitting themselves to the word of God. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 through 28, Jesus gets down on the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because they are so used to making themselves look outwardly holy. But they're missing the point. In verse 25, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Did I get it? Yes, I got it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. May it never, ever, 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 ever be said of a Christian that we are whitewashed tombs. May it never be said of us. May it never be said that we are full of death in our hearts. May it never be said we're full of dead men's bones. May it never be said that we're full of greed and self-indulgence. Yes, we struggle with those things. Absolutely. But let us pursue righteousness. Let us pursue the Lord. Let us pursue God's love and ask him, if we're struggling with this, ask him to wash you clean, to come inside and, and help you and shape you be what he's called you to be. Let's move on to the next section. I know I'm running out of time. And be holy. Verse 16. So that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, I'm probably sure you're looking at this, and you're like, wait a second, I don't remember Esau being sexually immoral. I kind of remember him being unholy, but what is it, why, why, does he, why does the writer of Hebrews say Esau was sexually immoral? Okay, well, let's break this down a little bit. That word immoral, sexually, uh, it means pornos, it's a fornicator, it, spe- it specifically speaks of a man in the context of this passage. A man who prostitutes his body to another's lust for hire, a male prostitute. A man who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse, a fornicator. But in the context of what this passage is talking about, it's the idea that Esau prostituted 
this great gift that he was given. What was the gift he was given? He was given the first, uh, he was given the inheritance, this birthright. And so he prostituted himself, he prostituted the birthright, the inheritance for something. What did he prostitute it for? A stew. And that stew, that lasted him for the rest of his life, right? He was full forever, right? He never had to eat again. He never had to take another morsel of bread or, or venison or anything like that, right? It was, like Jesus said, instead of living water, it was living stew, right? No. Esau gave up something that was eternal. Esau gave up something that would have blessed him and blessed his generation for all eternity to come. A, a promise that God had made that God would not revoke. Esau looked at that, and then he looked at this stew, which was temporal, which would only temporarily satisfy him. And he said, you know what? This is greater than this. And so in God's economy, that is equivalent to sexual immorality. He is a man who prostituted something that was great for something that was diminished, for something that would fade away, for something that wouldn't last. Now, are we doing the same thing? Are we doing that? Are we pursuing that which won't last to the detriment of that which will? Are we pursuing that which is insignificant compared to that which is greater? You see, Esau, we, we, some, you know, Esau, he's thinking like, you know what? Oh man, that Jacob in Genesis 27, you know, where Isaac blesses Jacob. He's like, oh, Jacob, that deceiver. But the reality is in Genesis 25, Genesis 25 is where he sold it away. He gave it away. He said, you know what, this, uh, he said, what does this matter to me? What does this birthright matter to me if I'm dead? And so he exhibited a lack of faith. He exhibited a lack of understanding. He exhibited a, a sinfulness in that he was pursuing and trusting in his human uh, flesh and not the holiness of God. He took that which was sacred. He took that which was uh, uh, consecrated. He took that thing which was holy and set apart to God, and he rebuffed it. And he said, I don't want that. I want this. And so Esau, we're not to be like him. We're not to be unholy like him. We're not to be this man who sold what God has given for a single meal. We need to make sure we're not living a life like that. And finally, that takes us to our last section. And know that certain choices are irrevocable. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And we see this account in Genesis 27, verse 26 through 40. As he comes near to Isaac, um, you know, he... Um, Isaac has already blessed Jacob, and Jacob barely had gone out, and then Esau comes in from hunting. He had also prepared food for his father, and um, as he prepares food for his father in verse 31, um, he says, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son. You know, I just want to stop right there real quick because... If we are pursuing, and, and unfortunately, many people in the world will find this out. If you're pursuing anything other than God, if you are 
confident in your self-righteousness, if you are trusting in the fact that you are a morally decent person and you're not trusting in the fact that God has provided a means for you to be saved through his son, Jesus, then you're going to come to the father one day and you're going to say, hey, bless me. And the father's going to say, who are you? He's going to say, who are you? In fact, we have that same theme repeated in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's verse 21. It's uh, verse 21, 22, but it says, basically, uh, many people will come to Jesus in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not uh, heal the sick? Uh, did we not do these things in your name? And, and at the end of that, Jesus says, depart from me, workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. That's terrifying for me to hear that. That'd be a terrifying thing. That'd be a terrifying, horrible day to think that you pursued, pursued this spiritual life, your whole life, you pursue church and church matters. And then finally you stand before the Lord and God says, I didn't know you. I didn't have a relationship with you. You did this for yourself, not for me. You did this for your own fame and for your own fortune. You did this with false motivations. You did not do this for the glory of God. That is a horrifying thought to think, to stand before a righteous and beautiful Savior who says he never knew you. And so here's Esau, and he's hearing this, and he says, I'm your firstborn. And Isaac trembled very violently, verse 33. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you and came and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. He has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So Esau, though he is weeping and bitter and crying and angry and frustrated, we see that the blessing is gone. That birthright is what we call the primogenitor. It is the, uh, the firstborn or the right of the firstborn son uh, to have a double blessing, to receive the inheritance, the inheritance of the name, as well as the property, as well as all the things that go with it, uh, all the rights and the advantages of the firstborn son and um, again, we see this first mention here in Genesis 25, well, in Genesis 25, two chapters earlier. Um, but it's the idea of there is this eternal blessing, this birthright that we have through Jesus, because the Bible tells us that we are co-inheritors with him. And that if we make these choices, if we allow ourselves to be governed by the flesh, then we could find ourselves with choices that are irrevocable. Uh, because as it says here in this passage, he desired to inherit the blessing. So there comes this time where people's eyes are open. It's like, wait a second, I want this. I do want this. I want to have this. But he was rejected. And there's no chance to repent, even though it's sought with tears. And so that should be a warning to us that we need to pursue God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to follow hard after him, and we need to make choices that honor what he desires to give us. And what, did he desire, what does he desire to give us? He desires to give us himself. He desires that we have him. 
But we are not robots. We are not people who all of a sudden filled with God's grace and we have no choice but to obey. Rather, he has lavished his grace. He has extended salvation, but we still have to choose. We still have to choose to accept. And so um, beyond that, as believers in Christ, beyond salvation, we have a choice every day. And that choice every day is to pursue him or to trust in our own wisdom. I pray that we would not do that. So this passage, again, we have to beware the flesh. We see the flesh in symbolic of the Amalekites. We see the flesh symbolic of Esau, uh, the idea of the flesh seeking to provide, to divide and uh, divide us away from God's grace, uh, desiring to bring about a root of bitterness in our hearts. We see the flesh symbolic in Esau, uh, in which he has rejected the things of God and chosen to accept the things which are temporary uh, and setting aside that which is eternal. We have to beware of our flesh. Because our flesh is evil, and our flesh desires to destroy us and bring us down. So we need to be strengthened in the Lord. We need to pursue Him. We need to till our hearts. We need to be holy. We need to know that certain choices are irrevocable. But praise the Lord, if we're here today, you're here today, and you've made a choice for Jesus, that is a choice that is irrevocable. That choice will never, ever, ever be done away with. If you have opened your heart to the Lord and said, I have called you my Lord, I'm asking that you will lead me, that you will be my Savior, that you will be my Lord, and I will follow you and pursue you all my life. That is a choice that God will honor for all eternity. But if you don't know Jesus today, if you don't have a relationship with him, then you're setting yourself up uh, to make a decision that you will not be able to overturn, that you'll not be able to do away with. And I want to encourage you today, pursue the Lord, call upon him while he's near, while he may be found. If you're hearing that voice right now, that's the Lord speaking to you. He wants a relationship with you. And so uh, as, we go, as we go before the Lord in prayer, uh, that's you today. I want to pray for you right now. So Lord, we just come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your truth. And we ask, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, that they would pursue you with all their heart right now, that they would just say, Lord, please save me. Uh, bring me into a relationship with you. Lord, I recognize where my choices are leading me. I recognize the consequences uh, of what will happen. Lord, I've been pursuing things that are temporal. I've been pursuing the flesh, the sensuality of this world. I have been, uh, Lord God, saying no and despising the eternal gift that you have through your son, Jesus. And Lord, I recognize that and I want to turn in the other direction. I want to make full teshuva. I want to make full repentance. I want to ask you into my heart. So right now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would hear their cry, the cry of their hearts, and that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would redeem them, that you would forgive them, and that you would save them. Holy Spirit, enter into their hearts and minds. Enter into them, uh, seal them against the day of redemption. And for us as believers, those of us, we have a relationship with God, but maybe we keep finding ourselves pursuing things of the flesh. Maybe we find ourselves um, 
uh, being, maybe there's bitterness in our hearts. Maybe that's one of us today. Um, maybe there's just someone in our lives in our past that we're just having trouble forgiving. They've wronged us. They've hurt us. You know, God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to forgive. He wants us to, to love just as he loves. He wants us to pursue peace. And so that's you today. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the Lord will free you. So you till the heart. Sometimes we have to uproot those roots, uproot those weeds, uproot those things that choke out the joy that God has for us. And, and that's what this has done. This has choked out God's joy. But that's not what God wants for you. So Abba Father, we, we pray that you would give this person the power to uproot those things in their lives, Lord, that they're holding on to, unforgiveness, bitterness, whatever it may be, Lord God, you know. Let us not be self-deceived. But Lord God, may we be enlightened by your word and by your truth. Jesus, you said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I pray that your word would set them apart right now. Set them apart from bitterness. Set them apart from anger. Set them apart from isolation. Set them apart from, from lust. Set them apart from all these things that will cause them to stumble and fall along the way as they pursue you in holiness. So we, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.